Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We have something new for all of our listeners. It's a way to support this podcast directly, along with Candleland's other two political podcasts. If you listen to us on the Apple Podcast app, you can get ad-free episodes of Commons, Wag the Dug, and The Backbench, along with bonus content and ad-free archives for just $2.99 a month. The perks are great, but more importantly, this is an affordable way to support this show directly, along with the other great Candleland political podcasts that are doing the kind of journalism that Canada needs right now. This is how we're able to make the most ambitious season of Commons we've ever attempted, it's how the backbench is able to go weekly, and it's how we get more Wag the Dug just as Ontario's election heats up. If you haven't subscribed to the premium feeds in Apple Podcasts before, they've made it incredibly easy. Just head to your library, click on your show page, and subscribe. This episode contains some graphic descriptions of violence, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Right now, it feels like the world is on the brink of war. For the people of Ukraine, the devastation has already started, but the rest of us sit at the precipice, poised to tumble over into it at any moment. This isn't the first time that we've been here. The last war, the one that we in Canada don't like to talk about, only came to an end last year. I remember watching scenes from the invasion of Afghanistan 20 years ago on TV. And I remember the moral certainty of it all, the sense of righteousness and justice. When we crossed that threshold, we didn't know what was coming, how hundreds of billions of dollars meant for schools and hospitals would vanish, how we would align ourselves with narco lords and torturers because the enemy of our enemy is our friend, the scores of Canadians that were maimed and killed in our name, and the hundreds of thousands who would lie dead at the end of it all. That same moral certainty, that same sense of righteousness, is in the air right now. And maybe it's justified, and maybe it isn't. But what I do know for sure is that it's in moments like this that we need to have a clear-eyed look at the last war, the one we lost, the one whose consequences millions of Canadians, Americans, and especially Afghans are still living with today. Over the next eight episodes, we're going to look at what really happened during Canada's longest war. Stories of Canadian soldiers betrayed and Afghans brutalized, corruption and cronyism on a gargantuan scale with its roots in Canada, war crimes that were covered up, propaganda that fueled our appetite for violence, and the many, many lies that our governments told us. And we're going to start that journey with a man whose life has been defined by the war. On August 25th, 2021, Wase Rahimi was trapped in Afghanistan. The Americans were leaving, the Taliban were in Kabul, and the last time Wase had encountered the Taliban, when they ruled the country in 2001, it hadn't ended well. They were putting people in the prisons, they were killing them, if they were against their government, they arrested all of us. I was in the prison for four months. They were trying to kill us. And it was very frightening. Wasa and his colleagues from a Christian NGO were thrown in prison for allegedly proselytizing Christianity. And Wasa himself was sentenced to death. The Taliban brutally tortured him 15 different times trying to extract the names of more of his co-workers. Wasay's life was saved when the Americans invaded Afghanistan after 9-11. He and his family fled to Canada where they became citizens. But last year, Wasay had returned to Afghanistan where he runs a non-profit aimed at helping women get jobs. That's how he found himself in Kabul as the people who had once imprisoned him were taking control of the country. His only goal was to get himself and his staff out of Kabul before the Americans withdrew at the end of the month, and there was only one way out, the Kabul airport. 
there was few gates all around the airport. He went to the Abbey Gate, one of the three main gates at what was still called the Hamid Karzai International Airport. Wasay had a Canadian passport, but his colleagues were not so lucky. I talked to one of the soldiers and they told me that, yes, if you want to go, you can go. I said, I can't go by myself unless you are helping all my staff to leave Afghanistan. The soldier told him to return the next day with his staff. So that's what he did. When he arrived the next day at the Abbey Gate, there were masses of people just like him trying to leave. There was a huge crowd of people. Thousands were packed in around him. In between the road and the gate itself was a sewage ditch. People packed into that too. In front of them, blocking their path, was a wall topped with barbed wire and guarded by fully armed Western soldiers. I was waiting for Canadian soldiers. Uh, I talked to a U.S. soldier. They told me Canadians will come late in the afternoon, around 3, 4 o'clock. So he waited there as the crowd continued to swell and shift around him. People yelling desperately, waving travel documents or reference letters into the air. For hours, Wasse and the others stood shoulder to shoulder, the fear and tension of the crowd mixing with exhaustion. And then suddenly... The explosion was just in front of me. I was among the crowd of people. Wasse was wrenched from his feet and knocked to the ground. The death rattle of the bomb echoed in his ears. I wore a white uh, Afghan national clothing, so all my clothing was full of blood of people, full of the pieces of the uh, human bodies. Bullets were whizzing by him. And I saw all my cloth was full of blood, and I looked around. I thought I'm uh, kind of injured or something. It is my blood. When I moved my body, I saw I am okay, but it was blood of other people who were around me. ISIS, an avowed enemy of both the Americans and the Taliban, had set off a bomb at the Abbey Gate. 183 people died that day. The Kabul airport attack was the deadliest terrorist attack of the entire Afghan war. And it was the bloody culmination of two decades of conflict, a final spasm of violence in a war that's left hundreds of thousands of people dead. But the official narrative of the bombing isn't the full story. And not everyone who died that day at the Abbey Gate was killed by ISIS. The war in Afghanistan was Canada's longest. More than 40,000 Canadian troops served, and countless Canadian civilians went to work in the country. But after 20 years, billions of dollars, and thousands of lives lost, Afghanistan is worse off than before. How could this have happened? That's the question we're going to answer in this season of Commons. It's a story of hubris and folly. It's a story of failure. And it's a story that right now more than ever needs to be told. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. Afghanistan is a country where over the last 20 years, hundreds of thousands of foreign troops have served and hundreds of thousands of Afghans were killed. Where the richest nations on earth spent trillions of dollars and deployed the most sophisticated military armaments in human history. And where on August 15th, 2021, two decades into one of the most brutal wars of the 21st century, around 1,000 Taliban fighters were able to take control of Kabul 
the capital of a country that was said to have 300,000 soldiers at its disposal. To understand how this could have happened, we're going to start at the beginning of the end, just days before the Kabul airport bombing, the day when the Taliban marched into Kabul. We're going to tell it to you through the eyes of the people who were there. Their stories show us what happens when you break a country, build it back up in your own image, make it utterly reliant on you, and then abandon it. And not all of these people are going to make it out. I was in Kabul on the same day when the Taliban entered to Kabul city. That's Gusadin Frotan. He's a journalist who's written for outlets like the Wall Street Journal, AFP, and the BBC. He's also a Pashto language poet and the founder of the first English language school in Kandahar. And when he'd heard that Kabul was falling, he was at the passport office, desperately trying to get his documents in order so that he could flee. The writing had been on the wall for months. The United States had pledged to withdraw the last of their troops by September 11th, 2021. In the weeks leading up to that symbolic date, the Taliban had taken more and more territory from the NATO-backed Afghan national government. And just days before, they had captured the capitals of many of the country's most important provinces. And Gusadin wanted to get out. For years, he had been applying for scholarships to Canadian universities, but with no luck. And he knew that if he didn't leave Kabul now, he might be stuck forever. So there he was, at the passport office, trying to renew his passport so that he, his wife, and his two four-year-old daughters might have a chance at leaving before the Taliban arrived. It was around 11 a.m. and it was my turn when I stand in front of the biometric section. All of a sudden, the attendant shut down their computer and began to walk away. I said, what's the problem? He said, Taliban entered to Kabul city. Just go. And then thousands of people started running everywhere. As a journalist, Gusadin was worried that once the Taliban were back in charge, he'd be targeted for his reporting. A colleague from the Wall Street Journal called him and told him that his only shot now was to get to the airport as fast as he could. Outside the passport office, it was chaos. Some people were making panicked phone calls, helicopters and jets were whizzing above the city, and every vehicle in Kabul seemed to be on the road all at once. Gusadin and a friend hopped in their car, but the traffic was impossible to get through. After 20 minutes of waiting, Gusadin decided to take his chances on foot. One of Gusadin's legs had been crippled by polio, so he struggled to walk, but he flagged down someone on a motorcycle who offered to give him a ride to his house. I just took my computer, nothing else, and I moved to the airport. When he finally did arrive at Hamid Karzai International Airport, Gusadin couldn't believe what he was seeing. And it was like a river of the people entering to Kabul airport. There was no policeman, there was no security. The doors of the airport were open and everyone could come in. This was something I saw the first time in my life. Tens of thousands of people were all rushing into the unguarded airport all at once. There was no possible way that all of these people would be able to make it out. And Gusadin didn't have any idea how he could make it onto a plane. But he was sure about one thing. I saw the collapse of my nation and collapse of my country on my eyes. Gusadin and his family figured their best shot was to stay at the airport. We spent the whole night in Kabul airport. I saw a lot of uh, Afghan government officials, like uh, member of the parliament, ministers, deputy ministers, advisors to the president of Afghanistan. They were coming and uh, trying to uh, find a flight and go out of the country. The president of Afghanistan had issued an order prohibiting government officials from leaving Kabul. But clearly, that wasn't being enforced. Gusadin and his family settled in for the night. We couldn't sleep. We were just sitting on uh, chairs. And uh, the children, I remember, they were laying down on each other and trying to sleep. But it was so difficult. He ran into a friend of his that night. And he told Gusadin that he'd actually made it onto a plane. 
he told me we were in the plane and suddenly we saw like around 50 people enter to the plane. Then the crew said that we cannot fly. We don't know these people. They don't have any document, any passport, any visa. So then the crew disappeared. And uh, after 20 minutes, when I was checking the cabin, I couldn't find my bag and uh, I lost everything. He said, I don't care about my computer. I don't care about my money. The only problem I have with my educational documents, I cannot find that again. After a restless night on the floor of the international terminal, Gusadin went outside to try to assess the situation. As the sun was rising, he could see U.S. Marines in front of tanks standing guard at one of the gates, blocking the path to the American military planes. But not long after, more chaos. It was around 8.30 a.m. I heard gunfire. When I went, the people were running everywhere and the U.S. Marines were firing. Seven people had been killed after they tried to push their way onto a plane. The whole area of Kabul airport was full of people and they were running everywhere. And it was about 12.30 p.m. when the Taliban entered to Kabul airport. The Taliban now controlled the only way out of Afghanistan. Gusadin noticed someone nearby wearing a Western-style shirt. And when he understood that Taliban are there, he suddenly disappeared. And after 10 minutes, I saw him in another clothes, in local dress. My daughter, when she realized that Taliban are there, so she started crying. So her mother asked her, what happened? She was uh, crying for me because she was afraid that whenever Taliban are there, so they will be looking for the journalists. I didn't tell this to my family members, to my friends, but God knows I was very afraid. Despite the Taliban presence, Gusadin stayed at the airport, but his situation was about to go from bad to worse. The fall of Afghanistan's Western-backed government happened very slowly and then all at once. Under both Presidents Trump and Biden, the U.S. had been drawing down their forces and negotiating with the Taliban in Qatar. In April 2021, the Americans said that all troops would be gone by September 11th, and by July, 90% of them already were. After years and years of international support, the Afghan National Army was expected to stand on its own against the Taliban. But the Taliban already controlled a third of the nation. That was mostly in the countryside, but they were quickly gaining ground. Brian Kastner was in Afghanistan in those final days. It wasn't his first time there. He's been there before as both an American soldier and as a journalist. And he says it's a place that's forever etched within him. Afghanistan, in some ways, for me, has just always been very personal because of the very good friends that were killed. I can name the dates and locations where they died very good friends that lost legs. There is a permanent connection. It is a connection of blood and family. Today, Brian's a senior crisis advisor at Amnesty International, where he focuses on war crimes investigations. Brian had returned to Afghanistan to document and investigate any war crimes perpetrated by either side of the conflict in the wake of the American withdrawal. And so our goal when we arrived in July was to document a few things. One is any war crimes that might be happening in the course of the fighting. And we uncovered a few massacres, particularly among ethnic and religious minorities. But then also just to document the very common civilian casualties of that slow grind of ground combat. The narrative in the international press at the time was that the Taliban takeover was proceeding as a bloodless coup. But from his vantage point on the ground, Brian saw that that wasn't true. For months, all summer in Afghanistan, as each of these towns and cities fell, they didn't fall peacefully. The heaviest burden always falls on civilians as it's their neighborhoods that are chewed up by mortars and machine gun fire. The front line kind of shifted every day. The Afghan forces that were at police checkpoints or Afghan National Army checkpoints would lob mortars right directly into the civilian neighborhoods. The Taliban fighters would come in on motorbikes. They would leave. 
Sometimes they would be hit, sometimes they wouldn't. The Taliban would take over schools, they would take over mosques. There was a, a couple weeks there in June where we could document day by day, this house and this house and this house, all in the same area, one family after another that was killed or injured by these attacks by both sides. And it was both the government and the Taliban who were being callous with civilian life. There were some cases where the Taliban were clearly aiming at a certain police checkpoint and happened to hit because mortars are inaccurate and should never be used in these neighborhoods to begin with. They just hit whoever you know happened to be nearby. And then there were other cases where the government just did not take any precautions at all. You know, in some cases, walked the mortars. When you fire a mortar, you have to walk it, which means you fire one round and you just happen to see where it goes. And then you kind of adjust and walk it into your target. And they would just walk these mortars through the civilian neighborhood to get to whatever particular Taliban force that they were looking to hit. And as the Taliban compiled victory after victory, they sometimes exacted revenge. We documented a massacre in Malistan, a small Hazara community, this tiny, tiny village, Mumadarakht. And there's probably 40 men there total, and a quarter of them were killed over the course of two days, mostly for being Hazara and Shia, or accused of being a former military of serving in the Afghan National Army. In Afghanistan, if you are an ethnic minority or a religious minority or former military, any one of those things might make you nervous and for good reason. But if all three of those applied to you, then that's when we really saw the killings happening. By the beginning of August, the Taliban had been making significant gains. They had surrounded the capital cities of many of the provinces. And aside from Kabul itself, there was one city that they valued above all others, Kandahar. Kandahar is the birthplace of the Taliban movement. It's where some of the bloodiest battles in the war took place. And it's where the vast majority of the more than 40,000 Canadian soldiers deployed to Afghanistan had been stationed. Kandahar had been Mohammed Sharif Sharaf's home. For two decades, he had reported on the Afghan conflict for publications like the Globe and Mail. He helped break some of the most significant scoops about the Canadian war effort. And even though most people don't know his name, his reporting significantly shaped the way Canadians understood the war. And in August, Sharif was back in his hometown province where he had reported on so many stories, watching the Afghan army make one final stand against the Taliban. I did not fight with the Taliban, but I did not hate Taliban, not Afghan government. This was not my job. My job was journalism. Sharif had moved with his family to Kabul a few years ago. But he was back in Kandahar with a Vice News crew to cover the battle. It was a dangerous place to be a journalist. The Afghan government had just arrested four reporters for doing their jobs. And Taliban fighters had executed Nazar Muhammad, a popular anti-Taliban comedian. By the time they arrived in Kandahar, the government had recommended that all civilians evacuate. And the Taliban had the city fully surrounded. Sharif and the other journalists watched from a hotel room as Afghan commandos tried to hold onto a wedding hall, one of their last fortified positions. The top of the wedding hall, there was commandos. Mostly the commandos were standing close to the windows and the top. This was my first time that I was in this big fighting between Taliban and Afghan government. The Taliban were shooting bullets. Afghan forces were shooting bullets. In the same time, it was a surprise for me that I saw some of the houses there were people. Three families had decided to stay despite the danger. They refused to abandon their homes. Sharif says that that contrasted with the actions of much of the Afghan army. He saw men laying down their weapons and fleeing. Many of them told Sharif that they hadn't been paid their salaries in months. They lift their weapons their property, everything to Taliban, and it would be easy for Taliban to capture all of them. The Afghan National Army claimed to have around 300,000 soldiers. But experts have argued that because of massive corruption, it was actually closer to 100,000. The desertions shrunk that number even more. The only ones who Sharif actually saw fighting the Taliban were the commandos, the so-called zero units, elite anti-terrorism teams that were trained and paid by the CIA. 
Human Rights Watch has accused them of being government-backed death squads. But even these highly trained, deadly soldiers couldn't hold off the Taliban advance. Not more than 600 soldiers. 600 soldiers can't keep al-Kandahar. It was not enough. And Sharif couldn't help but be impressed by the bravery of both of these sides, both the special forces and the Taliban. I really appreciate the fighting of commandos. They were really brave people. And that day when I saw them, and also the Taliban, you were down. You were not in this high place, but you were also brave people. Especially that day, I thought that if Afghan push back the complex and they join with each other, commandos and Taliban, really they can keep Afghanistan secure. But that was not to be. This was one of the last battles in a 20-year war. And despite the tenacity with which the Afghan commandos fought, Sharif could see that they wouldn't hold out for much longer. Already, provincial capitals were falling across Afghanistan, even in the north of the country where the Taliban had been historically weak. A few days into the fighting, as government forces continued to lose ground, Sharif got a call from a well-connected friend of his who told him to come over as soon as he could. He said, please come, you and your journalists bring here. I will tell you something. I said, yes, we'll come. When he did, his friend made a startling announcement. He said, this night, the governor decided to give Kandahar City to the Taliban. I said, what? He said, yes. I said, how can we know about that? He said, you will see it in the TV. They turned on the TV, and after a few hours, Sharif's friend's prophecy came true. The governor of Kandahar announced that the city now belonged to the Taliban. Sharif and his colleagues needed to find a way out. They drove to the airport to try to catch a charter flight, but after waiting for two hours, they were told it wasn't coming. They waited and waited, even as the Taliban closed in on the airport. Eventually, they got word that the Taliban would pause their attacks to let some of the journalists and other foreigners flee by plane. So in the middle of the night, they were finally able to board a military jet bound for Kabul. But what Sharif didn't know was the Taliban would be only two days behind him. Over the last 20 years, Afghans, especially in the rural parts of the country, have suffered immensely. But if there's one place where the people have benefited, it's Kabul. Enormous amounts of wealth have poured into the capital city, creating a powerful westernized elite. The population exploded from 500,000 residents to well over 4 million. And tens of thousands of Western expats, diplomats, journalists, contractors, consultants, and NGO workers lived and worked in heavily protected compounds in the city. Kabul had been subjected to numerous terrorist attacks over the years, but the prospect that the Taliban could ever retake the city was unthinkable. But in the early weeks of August, everyone knew that it was, in fact, inevitable. Well, as people realized that the end was near and the panic rush to evacuate began, there was this sort of surreal moment where we, I think, realized that this is the last days of this 20-year occupation, this bubble world that many of Kabul's expats have been living in behind their blast walls. That's Matthew Akins, a Canadian journalist who has lived in and reported from Afghanistan. And on August 13th, the same night that Sharif was making his journey from Kandahar, the last residents of this expat class held a raucous party. The party was at a guest house of an NGO in the green zone on the same street shared by the British and Canadian embassies. And I went there, a lot of my friends were there, and people were crying and saying goodbye, or dancing, drinking all the whiskey and wine that they'd stockpiled over the years. Alcohol was and is illegal in Afghanistan, but foreigners are allowed to bring in two bottles each for personal use. And that night, every secret bottle was extracted from their hiding places. And besides drinking and dancing, What everyone was focused on was getting the hell out of Dodge. We were all kind of gathered around our phones, checking the news, and literally as as the party went on, there were updates on on the situation, like the U.S. military is going to shut down the airport next week to commercial flights. Some people started trying to book tickets, you know, in the coming days. Mostly they were sold out. I was also told the party that, you know, by the end of the next day, the British and Canadian security that controlled, you know, the street in front of the embassy would be gone because the embassies were moving to the airport 
And a couple of days later, I was during the fall of Kabul, I just saw this like security gate empty. The guards were gone. And then the next day, it was being manned by Taliban. Surreal sight. Over the last 20 years, a hierarchy has emerged in Kabul, with English-speaking Westerners sitting at the top. And now, as people were planning their escapes, their foreign passports were more valuable than ever. Their passage out of Afghanistan was all but certain. But for Afghans, it was an entirely different story. As the war in Afghanistan dragged on, the West closed its doors. They made traveling as a tourist near impossible. Student exchange programs were canceled, and they created cruel, open-air prisons on islands in the Mediterranean and the Pacific to house unwanted Afghan asylum seekers. But many of the countries involved in the war, including Canada and the United States, had set up special visa programs for Afghans who had aided in the war effort. The only problem was, the burden of proof on Afghans was immense, and these programs were backed up and underfunded. The Americans had a backlog of 20,000 applications, and Canada had only ever let in 800 people under their program. But when the Taliban took control of Kabul on August 15th, Western governments had finally begun to ease these requirements. But there were far more people who wanted to get out than there were spots on planes. Even before the Taliban entered the city that day, all order had dissipated. Corrections officers fled, and the prisons were emptied out. Police officers stripped out of their uniforms and abandoned their posts. Even the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, who had been assuring Afghans for weeks that he would never flee the country, fled the country. Wase Rahimi, who you heard from at the top of the show, was determined to make sure that he and his staff made it out safely amidst all of the chaos. We met in the home of one of my colleagues, uh, so a group of five, ten people we met. Uh, so we gave them all the instructions. If you are arrested, what you're supposed to do and what is your responsibility? So I gave them all those kind of uh, information before the Taliban come. That was my job. And Mohammed Sharif Sharaf, fresh off of his journey from Kandahar, was also trying to make it out. The Globe and Mail, as well as the International Crisis Group, were both trying to get Sharif and his family onto a plane. But unlike Wase, Sharif says that he wasn't personally worried about the Taliban. I did not scare from Taliban. As a reporter, Sharif had dealt with the Taliban many times. He had friends who were Talibs themselves but he wanted his children to have the opportunity that Canada could provide for them. But he did have the niggling thought in the back of his head that maybe, once they were in power, some Talib who had taken offense to an old article might try to track him down and seek some revenge. So Sharif gathered up his family, got their documents in order, and headed to the airport. When he arrived, he found the Taliban guarding the gates and firing into the air to scare off the crowds. The people were standing there. They wanted to enter the airport. The Taliban were in the first gate, the main gate. They did not let the people to enter. He didn't know it at the time, but his old friend, Gusadin Froten, the journalist you heard from earlier, was in the airport on the other side of the Taliban. The two of them had gotten to know each other when they were both journalists in Kandahar. Sharif may not have been frightened by the Talibs, Magusadin was trying everything in his power to not attract their attention. The weather was so hot and we were thirsty. There was no canteen, no shops, nothing. There was one water cooler nearby. So many people were uh, rushing there to get water. And when the Taliban came, they started firing around the water tank to push these people back. Gusadin couldn't figure out what the Taliban were doing. It looked like they were searching for someone or something. They were not talking to the people. At that time, they had covered their faces. Along with his family, Gusadin was there with other Afghan journalists who had worked for outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And soon, they were told to leave the international terminal and to get to the military runway, where they would be escorted onto a plane by U.S. Marines. And whenever we reached to the runway, that was a terrible scene. 
there were thousands of people, a long queue of the people sitting on the runway. As we started walking towards the U.S. Marine, the other people also start running. So then it was out of control. The U.S. Marines started firing and everyone was running. At the same time, the Taliban came from the U.S. Marine side and they started beating everyone. The Taliban didn't want any Afghans to be allowed to leave the country. They started beating the people by gunstock, by cable, by sticks. Gusadin tried to run, but because of his disability, he had a hard time. I had my computer bag with me, and whenever I started to run, I'm disabled. I cannot run as uh, other people. So I was slept down, and I became happy because I thought, now they will stop beating me. But believe me, I was laid down on the land and they continued beating me there. As he lay on the ground, trying to fend off the Taliban's blows, Gusadin was separated from his family. And amidst the chaos, one of his two four-year-old daughters got lost. For an hour, as Marines were firing over their heads and the Taliban were delivering random blows, Gusadin, his wife and his daughter, desperately searched for one another. Thankfully, they did find each other, and they decided that that was enough. They needed to leave the airport immediately. But before they could, they had to make it past the Taliban checkpoint at the gate. The commander, the person who was controlling the checkpoint, asked another Talib, check everything clearly, be careful. If they looked at his computer, they'd quickly discover he was a journalist. I told him, no problem, you can check everything one by one. These are clothes of the children and other stuff. You can see there is no problem. And thanks God they didn't check my computer. It was with me and they just focused on luggage. So we came out of the airport gate. And when we came out of the airport in the entrance, there were so many people. It was around 8 p.m. during the night, and so many people were there, and a lot of them were walking because there was no taxi, no transportation. So we went back to our home, and we stayed there. Just as Gusadin and his family were leaving the airport, Brian Kastner was trying to get himself and his colleagues onto one of the U.S. Marine plans. And so I was with my colleagues who were not U.S. citizens, I personally was fortunate and privileged, and I have a blue U.S. passport that I could hold up. Under the light of flares dropped by helicopters, they pushed their way through the sea of people, trying to avoid the Taliban and get to the military runway. And when we finally did get to a line of Marines that were yelling at us to to go back, and they were shooting into the air, and they were shooting into the ground, and they were shooting over our heads or past our heads in some cases— to try to get us to go back. Brian slammed into the ground to avoid any bullets. When he got back up, he clung onto his passport like a lifeline. I held up my passport, and I'm an American. They grabbed me by the collar, almost, pulled me behind the line. And when I said that, oh, I need, my colleagues need to come with, I can vouch for them, I can vet them, they said, not tonight. Brian's American passport got him a seat on that plane. But his Afghan colleagues weren't so lucky. Brian says that the rhetoric you were hearing from the U.S. military was that all the Afghans at the airport were a threat, that they were trying to rush the U.S. side. But that's not what he saw. I can tell you because I was in that crowd, no one was interested in attacking the Marines. People were interested in getting behind them for safety. That didn't mean there wasn't danger. In fact, in just a matter of days, unbelievable horror would be visited on the crowds of people at the Kabul airport. On August 17th, Gusadin Frotan and the other journalists he was with were told to head to one of the three gates at the Kabul airport, the Abbey Gate. So many people trying to enter from that gate. And we stayed like for one hour in front of that gate. But we were told to go back because it's not possible to enter from that gate. Guzadin's family was getting increasingly discouraged. 
It seemed impossible that they would ever make it onto a plane. On the second day, my children were not willing to come again. They were saying, what's this? We don't want to go again to the airport. We are just tired and there is a fear of Taliban, a fear of explosion and anything can happen. I told them, okay, everything will be fine. Please uh, be patient and let's try again. But this time, they were told not to head to the airport, but to the Serena Hotel, a luxury hotel that also housed the embassy of Qatar. Now, Qatar is one of the few countries that's maintained good relations with the Taliban. And the Wall Street Journal had been coordinating with the Qataris to provide the journalists with an escort to the airport and out of Afghanistan. Gusadin and the others waited at the hotel until 5 p.m. He was nervous, and he became even more nervous when he realized who was going to be guarding the convoy to the airport. One of the Taliban came to escort us. He was standing in the door of each bus with his gun escorting us. The convoy crawled through the streets of Kabul until they reached the airport's eastern gate. They waited for an hour. Nothing. So they moved to another gate. Again, nothing. So they tried a third. They waited for hours and hours until finally, at 3.30 a.m., after sitting in the vehicles for more than 10 hours, they made it onto the tarmac. Gusadin, his family, and the other journalists were loaded onto a Qatari military plane, and they took off for Doha. It was the 19th of August. 19th of August is the Independence Day of Afghanistan. Normally, Gusadin would be leading parade floats covered with the Afghan flag, blasting patriotic songs. But instead, he was leaving his country, his home. It was so sad. It was so heartbreaking. We were sure that Afghanistan will become a dangerous place, not only for the Afghan people, for the region, and for the the whole world. But he knew that he was one of the lucky ones. Meanwhile, Wase Rahimi, the Afghan-Canadian NGO worker, was trying his best to get out of Kabul. He possessed maybe the most valuable thing in Afghanistan at the time, a Western passport. And yet he still couldn't find himself on a plane. He figured his best bet was the Canadian embassy. But when he got there, he found nothing. At the embassy, at the building of embassy, there was nothing. They moved all their equipment and stuff inside the airport. And they were ready to uh, escape if something happened. And they were safe, uh, but it was hard to reach them. I was trying a lot to reach someone in Canadian embassy to talk to them about my staff, how to get them in, the, in one of the airplanes to take them out. There was no, no way to reach them. The phone number, the email that they had, I tried several times. And none of them worked. They didn't answer. So he went to the Abbey Gate. Now, there had been rumors going around the city that ISIS was planning an attack on the crowds gathered around the airport. But thousands of desperate people, people like Wase Rahimi, thought it was worth the risk. The bomb exploded in the crowd outside the gate on August 26th at 5.50 p.m. Immediately, clouds of dust erupted into the air and the sewage canal filled with blood and bodies. Wase was knocked to the ground. And then, according to witnesses who spoke to CNN, the American and British soldiers manning the wall began to shoot into the crowd of injured Afghans. Nineteen different people told CNN that they either witnessed soldiers shooting into the crowd or were themselves shot. They claim that these weren't warning shots above people's heads, but direct live fire that killed and maimed Afghan civilians. Both the British and the American governments have denied that this was the case. But these claims are backed up by hospital records and interviews with emergency room doctors. 13 American soldiers and 170 Afghans were killed that day outside of the Kabul airport. And the evidence suggests that at least some of the latter were killed by American and British bullets. 
Wasai Rahimi miraculously survived. But he refused to go to the airport anymore. After the bombing, the Canadian government ended their airlift. No more Canadian planes would be leaving from the Kabul airport, and Mohammad Sharif Sharaf was running out of options. Like Gusadin, he was also waiting at the Serena Hotel, hoping that the Qataris might be able to take him to the airport. But over the course of 12 days and six different attempts, they were never able to make it in. The Qataris insisted that their names just weren't on the list that they had been provided. Do you have our names? They said, no, unfortunately, we don't have Every day we're asking, they said, we don't have our name. The Abbey Gate bombing seemed like the last straw. One of the journalists who was trying to get Sharif out, the Globe and Mail's Mark McKinnon, was told by a U.S. State Department official that only Western passport holders would now be led onto flights. It appeared that Sharif was going to be trapped in Kabul. But they were presented with one last chance, a final gambit that could get them out. At dawn, the day after the attack at the airport, Mark McKinnon phoned Sharif and told him that there was a Ukrainian convoy that they might be able to join. And he put Sharif in touch with a Ukrainian soldier. The soldiers had been tasked with something totally different. Most countries had troops stationed at the airport to assist with evacuations, but the Ukrainians were willing to go into the city itself to extract people and bring them to safety at the airport. Sharif, his family, and the others that were with him were told to make their way to a hotel closer to the airport. We moved from the hotel, started my messaging with this uh, Ukraine soldier. After confirming they'd arrived, they all waited in the vehicles. Other Afghans, realizing that they were headed to the airport, tried to break into the car, begging to also be taken to Kabul International. The situation was getting tense, but soon, Sharif saw around a dozen Ukrainian soldiers approaching them. The soldiers tried to clear the crowds. They were shooting bullets. When they shot the bullets, all the people escaped. And on foot, the Ukrainian soldiers escorted them through the streets. They were walking with us, not in the vehicle. They did not have any vehicle, just walking with us. Among the people, many people were there. Sharif thought to himself, that it would be incredibly easy for ISIS to mount an attack at that moment. But ever so slowly, they made their way to the Kabul airport, and within a few hours, Sharif was on a flight bound for Kyiv. The chaos of the final days of the war are a microcosm of the entire 20-year-long project. The Afghanistan that we built was a mirage, a castle of cards that came crashing down with the slightest push. Many decision-makers in the West treated the country as little more than a vanity project, an attempt to remake a part of the world in our own image. And when it wasn't working out, they shirked their responsibilities to the people of Afghanistan and brushed the entire enterprise under the rug. But the legacy of the war ripples through all of the people who lived through it. When the last American soldiers left the country on August 31st, the world went back to largely ignoring Afghanistan. The Taliban established control over the country. They issued a general amnesty after they came to power, but there have been numerous reports of individual Talibs attacking and killing people over grudges or personal vendettas. In Kandahar, there have been assassinations of former police and intelligence officers. Despite promises made to the international community, Girls have not been allowed to go back to school. And in many cities, women are being beaten by Talibs if they're not accompanied by a male guardian in public. Around 100,000 people made it out of Afghanistan during the Kabul airlift. But so, so many were left behind. One of them was Wasay Rahimi. The man who had once been tortured by the Taliban was now trapped under their rule once again. I knew if I was arrested this time would have been much more dangerous, probably being killed. Wasay begged for help from the Canadian government, but he says he got none. For the next few months, he was on his own, trying to evade the Taliban at every turn. And the people of Afghanistan were abandoned too. A country that for 20 years had relied on foreign aid was all of a sudden cut off. The U.S. government froze the Afghan central bank's funds, cutting it off from the world economy. Even when some of that money was unfrozen, 
the U.S. seized $3.5 billion. All of that has led to a humanitarian catastrophe for Afghans. More than half the country is at risk of starvation. About a million of them are children. And all of that has forced the people of Afghanistan, the ones who can at least, to flee. There are 2.5 million Afghan refugees. And as the world opens the door to Ukrainian asylum seekers, many Afghans still languish in detention centers or on island prisons. Even the last few weeks, many report being beaten by border police in Hungary and Croatia. Canada has promised to bring in 40,000 Afghans. So far, only 8,500 have arrived. The war in Afghanistan may be over. You heard how it ended. How 20 years of military intervention and foreign aid dissolved into nothing over a handful of weeks in August 2021. But what you haven't heard yet is how all of this happened. How exactly we got here. That's your episode of Commons. This is our first episode in our series on the war in Afghanistan. We have so much more in store for you. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can now support all of Canada Land's political podcasts, including Commons, Wag the Dug, and The Backbench for only $2.99 a month and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Mohammed Sharif Sharaf, Gusadin Froten, Brian Kastner, Matthew Akins in the New York Times, Mark McKinnon in the Globe and Mail, Paula Duhatchik at CBC News, Riley Sparks in the Toronto Star, the reporters behind CNN's investigation of the Abbey Gate bombing, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod, you can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azaria. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. <laughs>